Well, good morning. It's been uh, a good weekend. Uh, thank you for welcoming my wife and I in. Uh, it's been great to get to know you, but I also kind of feel like I'm just getting to know everybody, so I feel a little bit like Bilbo Baggins. I know half of you half as well as I'd like, but um, we're going to parachute into First Peter here, and let's turn to the Word and, uh, and start with prayer. Father, through Christ, you've given us the words of life. And where else could we go but to you for those words? So give us ears to hear this morning, open our hearts, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, Peter... This is a passage I went to because Peter is introducing himself to a church, and, uh, or at least some of the church. There's a, some scholarly debate about this. Uh, the, if you read back into verse 1, you, you hear about all these regions that he's writing to, and this is all in modern-day Turkey. And he may have made his way through there, so he may, knew, he may have known some of the churches, but these are big provinces that he's writing to. So these churches don't know him. Uh, this is a letter of introduction, but they are churches that are experiencing difficulty. They've gone through suffering of some sort. We don't know all of what they've experienced, but if you read through Acts and you're paying attention, you'll realize that much of what Paul suffered was in the same region. In less than 50 years or so after this letter was written, the first account that we have from Roman authorities about persecuting Christians is a letter from this region, from a guy named Pliny the Younger. I don't know if you've heard of him. I'm, I'm kidding, you wouldn't know who he is. The, uh, the, Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of Bithynia and Pontus, two of the, re, the districts listed in verse 1, uh, and he describes the threat that the Christians were to the social order, and specifically because they wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor. So we know that even from the very beginning, these churches in this region, and even to this day, struggle with persecution. What does that have to do with you in Charleston? Well, this is a passage I've gone back to over the last decade or so, uh, in ministry as I've been in a place that is pretty thoroughly post-Christian. But increasingly, this is the situation the church finds itself in, that American culture no longer assumes the norms of, of Christianity. And that's more obvious in cities than it is anywhere else. The ground is shifting. We're becoming an increasingly post-Christian world. And so, the question that I think Peter gets at right at the beginning for these Christians is the same question we would ask. Why does this matter? When Peter introduces himself to this new church who's struggling, why would they get behind this? Why would anybody be a Christian? And increasingly, that's a question that we have to be asking as a church. And you can feel how tangible it is that the anxiety about society around us especially in the church, 
but how little we have actually asked, what does that mean for us? Why are we here? What is it we're proclaiming? What is it we're celebrating? Why are we here this morning? Why does the gospel matter? Why be in the church? And the way Peter goes about addressing these is to celebrate the gifts of the gospel. Peter is not happy to have a gospel that is an add-on to your life. But it changes your whole perspective. So I want to, I think that Peter unpacks three different perspectives on this. First, the enduring gifts of the gospel. Secondly, the temporary gifts. Of, and finally, the most important gift. So think about the enduring gifts for a moment. As Peter opens, he, sa- he, he blesses God. He celebrates God, the Father who sent the Son. And it's His mercy, it's according to His great mercy that all of this has happened. It is the heart of the Father that animates all of redemption. It's the driving force behind it. And it is through what His Son has done, the Son that He sent in the flesh to die and be raised up, that all of this comes to us. Everything about the gospel comes to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And the way that he describes how it takes place in us is this really well-known phrase, being born again. Being born again. It's a, it's a phrase that is, is uh, pregnant with meaning. It has so much <laughs> to say to us. It echoes what Jesus said to Nicodemus. In John 3, 3, right, that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. It's a a variation on the Greek verb that that he plays with there. He's clearly echoing Jesus. And we're born, notice this, because those first few verses of this passage are hard to keep track of everything that's going on, right? But he says you're born again for this purpose to a living hope. And then... To restate it in verse 4, he says it's an inheritance, an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. But notice this, you're being kept in heaven for it in verse 5. God God has kept your inheritance for you, but He is also keeping you for your inheritance. God's power is at work through faith in in you to keep you for Him. In other words, all the gifts from God that we have in the gospel are for you and for your whole life and for us individually and corporately. You might have noticed some of the plural pronouns here. It's for us. All the you's in there, they're all plural. They're all the y'all's in here. He's not talking about just uh, you individually, just me individually in my own sort of siloed spiritual space. He's talking about the church together. Now, it's worth stopping and thinking about this idea of being born again, because this is terminology that evangelicals in America have used for quite a while, right? You hear it over and over and over again. And at its best, of course, I think it means what Peter is getting at here. I think it means what Jesus is getting at, that when you come to faith in Christ, a radical transformation, a powerful transformation that affects all of your life is at work. 
But at its worst, at its worst, it's a kind of badge that suggests you're trustworthy often when your actions say something else. It's the kind of instrument of politicians and celebrities, right, to try to gain trust. But let's not let our cynicism muddy the waters here. If you think back to what Peter is saying, what he's, say, what he's saying as he echoes Jesus' words, is that God's, God's plan for you is comprehensive. It's present and future. It's internal and external. external it's individual and corporate. This little phrase that it's kept for you in heaven in verse 5 is so, so important because when or the end of verse 4, I guess it is. But the, when Peter is saying that it's kept for you in heaven, heaven is not some place we're going off to by and by to be with God. Now, there is, there is questions about immediately after your death where you end up and how all that works. It, but that actually isn't what the Bible talks about most of the time. Most of the time when, the thro- when the heaven is talked about, it's the throne room of God. It's the place where he is making his pronouncements and making his plans, where he is preparing them and he unfurls them in his time, in history, in the world. Think back to the very beginning. Let there be. Let there be. There's a king on his throne. Declaring, and it is so, right? And if you look to the book of Revelation, if you look to uh, Isaiah 6, if you look at any number of places, you see that heaven is always the throne room of God where He's making His plans and they are going to work. They will not fail. So the image that Peter is suggesting to us is that God is making His plans. He's preparing this amazing thing that's going to be rolled out. So Peter certainly has the consummation, the end of this thing in mind, but it's at work even now, in part, in them, those churches, and even now in you, this church, half a world away, two millennia later. It's at work. And the way it works is is first internal and then external. That just as death came into the world first spiritually, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, and then death came physically, so too God's regenerating work starts spiritually and then will take place physically with the resurrection. So it is at work in you even now. The resurrection is at work in your heart even now. You have been born again. You have, been, you have become something else. You have a new life at work in you. So it is present and future. It is internal and external, but it is also individual and corporate. Because, listen, we can hear spiritual talk and very much apply it to ourselves personally. Have a kind of... Uh, have a kind of Oprah spirituality, right? That is, 
that is about you and your self-improvement. And God's got plans for you. He wants you to change, but He wants us to change together. He wants the church to grow together because when you're born, you are a child of God, which means you are part of His household. God isn't birthing individual children that He sends off into the lonely universe, right? He is making a household together, that you belong together. And yes, there's some crazy uncles. There's some difficult children. There's some easygoing children. There's some dads who are a little too firm, or kind of pushovers too, I guess. But the, there are lots of different people in this family, but this is God's family, and He is at work in all of them. He is at work in all of us. Which is to say that if you're a Christian then, this idea of being born again ought to give you perspective that changes every aspect of your life, that addresses your ambitions, your struggles, your frustrations. I mean, what are you frustrated with this week? Your children? Well, your parenting? Your friendships that aren't as simple, as easy as you would like them to be? How you relate to your boss at work? How you relate to those that, <laughs> for whom you are the boss? How you go through school, the people you know there, the way you treat each other. What Peter is reminding us is that you are God's child. You have been reborn. If you have faith in Christ, there is something at work in you that is more powerful than you've ever dreamed. Take heart. Maybe that means you're discouraged and you need to be reminded that you are His and He has not forgotten you. Maybe you need the courage to do and say the things you need to do and say. Maybe you need the energy to make the changes you ought to make. Remember that you are God's child. And is anything too great for Him? Maybe you're not a Christian and you're here. This is how big the gospel is. Being born again isn't about changing your political allegiance. It isn't about an abstract change in your life. It is about a complete remodeling of your heart. And that's what's on offer. Peace when you're discontent. Certainty for our clamoring hearts, comfort in our sorrows. That's how big this is. Now, Peter's also honest that there is another gift that comes with following Christ. Did you notice the change in verse 6? Did you notice as he shifts gears? In this you rejoice, that is, in, in, this, in this gospel, in being born again. Though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, this is the gift no one wants, the trials that come with being a Christian. Now, Peter's not talking about suffering as a whole. He's not talking about that big category. That's a longer conversation for another time. Peter's talking about those who follow Christ experiencing trials. And the metaphor he uses is of gold being refined. But that's only a metaphor, because even gold passes away. But something more enduring is being refined in you. Something more profound than the greatest wealth and the greatest opulence is growing when you experience trials. And this is kind of a weird thing to understand because I think most of us have a hard time dealing with this in general. But more than that, understanding that this is a key part of the Christian experience. And I'm going to let you in on a secret that's a pretty open secret. It is a key part of the Christian experience. Later in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verse 12, he'll say, Do not be surprised when trials come, as though something strange was happening to you. This is normal. This is what it's like. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul, one of the other apostles, gives this promise. He says, indeed, if all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've never seen that on a Bible promise calendar. They search for every promise in the Bible, and the promise of persecution is never there. I've never seen anybody embroider that on a pillow to put in their living room. Somebody should, somebody should do that. Please do that and invite me over. I will, that would make my day. But this is the thing. Once you start to see this in the New Testament, you see it everywhere. Once that starts to sink in, you can hardly read an epistle and not see this thread woven throughout it. But more than that, if you look at Romans 5, 3 and 5, or you look at James 1, verses 2 and 3, you will see this theme that what trials do is refine us. Something grows through adversity. And we have a hard time understanding this because it's more convenient to think of the Christian life as being the American dream. It's more convenient to think that a good life is one of comfort and ease. Or to think that if I'm living well, I'm living without any turmoil. Isn't that the message you get everywhere? But the Bible teaches us the opposite. That God tests those that He loves. And that is a hard thing to understand. And we do need some perspective, right? There are Christians around the world who are imprisoned and put to death, who lose their livelihoods for following Christ. Even to this day, and in fact, in some ways, it is worse today than maybe it's ever been. And I doubt anybody has that story here. 
And yet, and yet, we are promised we will experience persecution. And what does that look like in your life? I think that I've spent the last decade with college students, and I think for them a lot of times the distinctive life they live, right, the choices that they've made with what to do with their bodies or what to do on Friday night or how they went about, you know, things they would or wouldn't do stood out. In other words, there was a kind of moral distinctiveness, and maybe that's what it looks like for you. And that's difficult because you know you're different. Maybe it means that we are wiser about the age in which we live, in a technocratic age like ours that, that tells us that the next discovery is going to deal with all the problems in the world. We're a little wiser than that. And we are unwilling to, admi- to buy into the mythology of progress. Maybe it means that we are... <laughs> no longer buying the totalizing political claims of our day when it seems like everything has become political. And instead, we're waiting for, we're actually waiting for a kingdom that is to come. Not at home in this world completely. I think also it must mean a determination to love. You always hear love in the Bible as being at the heart of the transformation that's happening. If you think to how Paul often describes it, say in Ephesians 5, Galatians 6, love is always at the center in Colossians 3. These are always, Paul is always saying love is at the center of this. Of course, Jesus taught us, right, that everything that we're called upon to do is love God and love our neighbors. More than that, Jesus was quite clear, right, love even our enemies. I'm not sure the church has always been known for loving its enemies. And there's nothing worse or I should say, nothing more polarizing than when an enemy is loved. Because it will drive a wedge. They will either wonder what is at work here to keep you from hating me, or be embittered that you would still persist. This is how it always is. The best examples of this are in families. When, over the course of my time in campus ministry, I I dealt with a number of families where there was abuse in the background. And when somebody starts to say, I'm going to love you well, which means tell the truth, maybe maybe set the appropriate boundaries I need, and still love you. It is the most infuriating thing. All kinds of issues come back up. New anger that no one saw. And for others, it's life-giving. They find that there is another way to live that they didn't see. As we are less and less 
holding the reins of power in our culture. There is one thing that can never be taken away is the power of love. And listen to this. The more that you love others who persecute you, bless those who persecute you, as Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 5, the more that we do that, the more we start to understand something really important, the heart of Jesus. Because there is somebody who has loved the unlovable, the undeserving, to the very end. It's Jesus. Once we start to understand that, maybe that's how we can understand what Peter is saying. Peter isn't answering all of our questions about why trials come or how it all works in God's grand plan or why some endure more than others. Peter isn't answering those questions. He's saying, I can promise that if you go through it, you will learn the heart of Jesus. This is where the fruit of the Spirit is born, where it grows. This is how it takes root in your life. It's through adversity. One of the old Puritans used to say, a guy named Samuel Rutherford, grace grows best in winter because it drives the roots down. Trials teach us the very heart of Jesus. So listen, if you're a Christian and you're here and you want to avoid trials, you're missing something profound about who Jesus is. Because in the trials, He makes you like Him. In the trials, we start to bear the likeness of the character of God. It is in trials that we start to learn who He really is, and there He teaches our hearts His own character. Which I guess gets us to the last thing, the most important gift, which is God Himself. The gospel has all these benefits, but notice how verse 7 tells us that all these trials result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. In other words, they lead us into celebration. And though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. Though you haven't seen Him, you believe and you rejoice. You're rejoicing. And think even how Peter began this, right? By celebrating who God is. And that all of this came from Him. So that the benefits of, that we enjoy as Christians, those temporary ones that give birth to the enduring ones, are still the benefits. They are not the end in and of itself. The end in and of itself is to be lost in wonder, love, and praise for God. To be near Him to celebrate Him, to praise Him, and to enjoy Him, and to see Him face to face. That's the goal. And Christians so easily lose sight of this. That's why this, that's why this is inexpressible. Because at the end of the day, I can't put words to all that that means. Because it's inexhaustible. Because it's standing in beauty itself. It's to be Hold goodness itself 
to see what is really true with clear eyes. Our words even fail to do this, and yet that's why we praise Him. That's why worship is the thing that we do now that we know will continue, because it never ends. Because we will behold God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. You get that? It's not, it only, you don't only, you're not just getting it off your mind, finding a way to, get a, to, to say it. It's actually the completion of the experience. It's its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. And then he goes on, he says, the Scotch Catechism, meaning our Westminster Catechism, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify, and in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. This is Peter's answer. Why should we be here? Why does the gospel matter? Why would anybody become a Christian in that kind of setting? Why would anybody become a Christian now? It's because these beautiful gifts are on offer, and the one that matters most, the one that is the goal of all of them, is that you will get to be with God and enjoy Him and be lost in His power and His beauty and His majesty. All of those things. And think, think about this. There's a kind of cloudiness often in that most important issue for many Christians. Do I love God or do I love the benefits He gives me? Do I love Jesus or do I love what Jesus offers? Now, I need to be careful here because you never receive Jesus without receiving what, all those benefits. And yet, you can chase after the benefits without ever really wanting Him. Maybe that's another way of seeing what Peter's saying about trials, isn't it? Is the benefits seem to sort of fade into the background in difficulty. And it exposes whether we really want God, whether we really want what Jesus has accomplished in the gospel. And listen, all those benefits, those are important. In the church, we've got to spend a lot of time talking about those, unpacking those, applying those practically in our life. They're so important, but they are not the end. The old theologians used to say, look, those are supposed to make you fit for heaven, make you the kind of person that can actually stand before the radiance of God, that can actually enjoy that kind of beauty without being blown away, without being overcome, without being, as it were, burned away. That's why you've got to be refined, right? So that you won't be burned up, you'll be burned clean. Be the kind of person that can stand there. I think my favorite illustration of this came from another RUF campus minister that I knew. He had a student that came to faith, and this guy was talking about it with some of his friends, and, and they were saying, well, look, I mean, I, 
I get what you're saying, but you know, why can't there be, why does there have to be judgment? Why does there have to be any of that? I mean, could, like, can't there just be maybe levels of heaven, like some religions have, right? And, you know, if you're, a, everybody kind of gets to go to the lower level, or maybe if you're kind of a pretty good person, you go a little higher, or whatever. And his answer to them was as beautiful and succinct and clear as any I've ever heard. His answer was, if Jesus wasn't there, it would be hell. Because that is our end. To be with God. To enjoy Him. So are you here for the benefits? Again, they're wonderful. There's a lot of good things to enjoy about the church. There's a lot of good things to enjoy about being a Christian. But they're not the end. They're not really the goal. In one day, the going will get tough. Or are you here for God? Are you here to meet Him? Even if we are just getting a glimpse of what it's like to stand in His presence. Even if we're just getting a taste of what it means to to enjoy His feast. Even if this is just a crack, a peek behind the curtain for what lies ahead. That's why we're here. That is an endless source of wonder. That is something that will keep us coming back to Him over and over and over again. Just think, isn't the truth of His grace wonderful? Isn't the goodness of His love astounding? That He would lay down His life they would send it, that the Father would send His Son to lay down His life for us. And isn't the beauty of His heart worth, heart worth singing about forever? Let's pray. Father, we know that our only hope is in You. That we have no other home that is worth uh, investing in. No other place we should be but worshiping You. And Lord, if there are some that are not certain about that even this morning, we pray that You would make it clear by Your Spirit. And even as we come to Your table, we ask that You would give us a taste. That You would draw us by Your Spirit into Your presence. That we might enjoy being with You being near You, and that that would give us perspective, that that would give us energy, that that would give us focus, uh, even as we leave this week. We thank You for Christ. Now feed us by Him as we come to the table. We ask in His name. Amen.